Good morning. Glad to have you here today. So if you're, if you're uh, paying attention during the part of our service that leads up to the preaching, there's a good chance you are able to kind of guess which direction the sermon's going to go, and that's the case today for sure. Um, and so we're going to begin looking at this text together, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, by asking this question, how healthy is your conscience? How healthy is your conscience? That thing that God gave you to guide and direct your life, the thing that God gave you to keep you from error and out of danger, the, key, the thing that, that draws you to him, the thing that everybody possesses, a, a conscience, how healthy is your conscience? Does it motivate you to do good? Does it motivate you to change direction? Through the first five chapters of the book of Mark, uh, Mark has been presenting Jesus Christ uh, and his true identity as the God of heaven become man to solve the solution of mankind. That's why Jesus came. That's who he is. That's who Mark is presenting. And so for five chapters, he has is, he is listed uh, evidence after evidence that supports that claim, that Jesus is God, and that he came to resolve the chaos in your life. All of us experience chaos, don't we? We all have different things in our lives that, that create problems for us. Uh, if you've been alive the last two years, you are personally familiar with chaos. And so we have a, a savior, Mark is saying, that came into this world to help us resolve this chaos. And now we think as you know, normal Americans that resolving chaos means getting rid of it, right? <laughs> if, if I'm sick, the resolution of my chaos is getting well. If I'm poor, it's getting rich. If I'm in a bad marriage, it's improving that. And, and so we think that if I know Jesus, I ought not to have those kind of chaotic problems. And that's not the case, right? <laughs> of course not. The promise that Jesus makes, the promise that Mark is representing, is that Jesus walks with us through our chaos. He doesn't necessarily take us out of the chaos. He's in the boat with us in the storm and in the chaos that we may be experiencing. But he's presenting Jesus here as this in the first five chapters. And then we get to chapter six, and Mark is starting to ask questions of his readers, those of us who've been following this presentation of Jesus Christ. And he's basically asking this question, well, who do you think Jesus is? I've told you he's done this, 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 and the other. What would you say? is up here. Who is he? Is he God as he claims to be or not? And so in chapter 6, Mark records the response of the people to this Jesus. If you look at verses 1 through 6, you'll see that Jesus returned to his hometown, Nazareth, and Mark says that they rejected him. Not just his neighbors and his friends from the place he grew up, but his own family rejected him. The only person in Nazareth who believed in the identity of Jesus Christ was his mom. She's always good for that, right? He's a good boy. You know, it's what we hear our moms tell us. Well, 
she believed, but no one else. His own brothers and sisters thought he was nuts, literally. They thought he was crazy at this point. And then in verse 7 through 13, Jesus sends out the 12 and asks them to preach and present him again, Jesus Christ, to the people of Israel, uh, which we know they rejected for the most part. And now we come to our story today in verse 14 through 29, where we read of this guy named Herod and how he got rid of John the Baptist, the prophet. And what do we see here? But the rejection of Herod, Herod's rejection of Jesus Christ, Herod's rejection of God. So this is, this is really marked record of Herod's, Herod's response to Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about um, Herod in this short vignette that we just heard read uh, about him um, and his response to Jesus. This, this guy Herod is an interesting character, to say the least. Um, Herod, of course, his identifying mark was Antipas, Herod Antipas was from a family of Herods. In fact, there is called the Herod family. Uh, Herod the Great was his dad. Herod the Great was the one who was famous for his brutality. He's the one who ordered the execution of all the babies in Bethlehem, remember, when Jesus was a youngster, trying to get rid of Jesus. He sent um, the military out to Bethlehem to execute all those babies. The weeping in Rama, Jeremiah called it. Uh, he also had, uh, Herod the Great also had um, two of his sons executed because he thought they had um, some political aspirations he didn't think they should have. And so this Herod, Herod Antipas, survived, uh, but he wasn't too squeaky clean himself. Um, he, he basically executed the Sanhedrin because they disagreed with him. Sanhedrin was a ruling body in Israel. Um, he married his niece, the Herod that we just read about, married his niece, whose name was Herodias. She also was <laughs> his sister-in-law. Uh, some pretty cool uh, family get-togethers, I suppose, they had, right? <laughs> Have you met my niece, wife, sister-in-law? <laughs> oh, brother, oh, that's right. You were married to her last week. Forgot about that. That's what this family was, psychos, all right, in charge. So this is the story of this guy. Um, he was not a Jew. He was an Idumean, which means he was a descendant of Esau, the enemies of Israel. Uh, the Jews hated him, not just because of his heritage, though, but because he had zero Jewish interests. It was all about Herod, all about promoting himself. History tells us, um, and like I said, his family was famously brutal. But uh, when we, when the story comes about, you don't know all this about Herod. You you pick it up as you read through the Gospels, and then also a fellow named Josephus, who was a secular historian, uh, wrote about Herod and his family and his relationships and the trouble he had. Um, Herod Antipas, which is the Herod of this story, the son of Herod the Great, was given his governorship by his dad before he died. So he was one of the 
few boys that were left from the family of Herod. His dad gave him the province of Galilee and Perea to govern, which is why he's called Herod the Tetrarch, the governor, Herod the governor. So what I want to ask you to consider this morning is, is not just the, the <laughs> terrible story that we just read, uh, or the terrible family from which this man came. But I want, you to, I want you to look in the mirror and ask yourself the question, how is the health of my conscience? What we're seeing here in this story is the life and death of Herod's conscience. It's a story about a, another rejection of Jesus Christ, but it's also kind of a, a slow motion video of a dying conscience right in front of us. Something we need to avoid like the plague. Let's look first of all at verses 14 through 20, and I've split this up in a couple ways, but verses 14 through 20, 20 speak to us about the awakening of a sleeping conscience. I want you to notice how Herod responded at first to the preaching of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist preached in Galilee and um, on the eastern side of the Jordan, also a place called Perea. Um, but it, this, this sad story is really reflective of so many in human history and how they um, neglect their conscience. The story gives us an opportunity to exa examine the health of our own conscience. And if you today, this morning, see similarities in your life, I really pray um, that you would receive this morning God's intended warning for you. The memories that, that Herod had of John the Baptist came flooding back into his mind when he heard of Jesus. It says in verse 14, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus had become known. Heard of what? Heard of the same kind of things John the Baptist used to do. Fiery preaching, penetrating preaching, miracles and the such. It reminded Herod of the way John had confronted sin in his own life. And so the memories of the truth came flooding back into his mind when he heard of Jesus. He remembered all the things that John the Baptist had said. And he, Herod, considered the possibility that maybe this was actually John the Baptist come back to life. And that was a serious consideration to him. So what we know, what this tells us is that when John preached, it stirred, it stirred up in a good way Herod's heart, his conscience, um, when John confronted his sin. It, the, it, it stirred his conscience towards God. It, when, when, John, when, when John spoke of, of sin, it made Herod realize that he was in opposition to God when he sinned. He, he knew what he was doing was wrong, but something in John's message seemed to resonate in Herod's heart. That, of course, if you push buttons long enough, <laughs> people respond, right? Which is what Herod did. He finally got fed up with all the reminders of his you know, failures and sin and had John thrown in prison, as Mark records. But these, these memories flooded his mind and, and, and kind of 
stirred up his conscience. Um, when a sinner faces the truth of God's word, it either repels them or draws them. This is what God's word does when people are exposed to it. It either repels them or draws them. And in Herod's case, it was actually drawing him Christward. Verse 20, look at that. It says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, that's when Herod heard John preach, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. What does it mean he was greatly perplexed? John's preaching made him very uncomfortable, is what that means. I, I'm, I'm sure this has happened to you, it's happened to me. You hear a certain sermon from a certain pastor and you feel stricken in conscience. This is what was going on with Herod. You know, we, we necessarily don't feel comfortable when a pastor mentions something about a sin and we take it personally and it strikes our conscience. Every time John was opening his mouth, it was kind of like a raw, penetrating javelin to the heart of Herod and it perplexed him. It made him uncomfortable, but he came back gladly. He kept coming back for more. That tells us that there was some kind of evidence of life in his conscience. Same kind of thing happened to King Agrippa, King or Governor Felix and Governor Festus in Acts 24 through 26. Remember when they listened to Paul preach and uh, they said they hated it, but they kept inviting him back to preach. It's the same thing happening. It, the, the, the preaching of Paul, the preaching of John the Baptist, was drawing by way of a sensitized conscience to or towards God. I've wondered if maybe what attracted Herod to John was his bluntness. Remember, Herod was a politician. And I bet he got sick and tired of the snivelly, puny political hacks that filled his court. Being yes men, saying whatever he wanted to be said. But John comes along seemingly <laughs> with very little sensitivity uh, and he had no agenda other than to speak the truth. Maybe Herod appreciated the bluntness at least this guy speaks his mind. My whole cabinet, a bunch of losers, I can hear it. John didn't care about etiquette and treading lightly. He wasn't original. He wasn't interested in anyone's praise but God's. And I think this is a good model for us as we think about sharing the gospel with people in our lives, our, our neighbors, our coworkers, our, our family members. Uh, we should care more about truth and eternal things as John the Baptist did than decorum. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't miss that John didn't care about decorum. His clothes were the identifying mark, right? He wore a camel's hair with a leather belt, and he smelled like it, most likely. He really didn't care about that. He was, here's the truth, take it or leave it. It's the kind of guy he was. And in, in case you think that he was kind of a, a scrub, 
Jesus called him the greatest man, the greatest man who was ever born of a woman. Jesus called him that. <laughs> so he wasn't a scrub. He just had a high view of the truth. <laughs> so Herod's conscience was being stimulated again by remembering John, remembering John's preaching. But then we have this truth problem, being confronted by truth. If you're living in untruth, the truth bothers you. If you're living in sin, God's word bothers you. If you're living in the dark, the light bothers you. Right? Yeah. Verse 20 shows us how close someone can be to grace and glory and yet fall short of both. Now, I understand the, the doctrine of election. And yet we have here a story about a man whose conscience drew him right up to the threshold of grace. And yet he didn't step over. He refused the gospel of Jesus Christ that John was preaching. He rejected Jesus. Mark is saying here, even one of the most powerful men in Israel rejected Jesus. Not just his family, not just his neighbors, the governor of Galilee. So, as much as Herod respected John, he wouldn't believe his message. Even though John was a holy and righteous, godly man, Herod wouldn't be moved from his unbelief and preferred the darkness instead of light. What's this tell you? you know, it tells you a lot about Herod, but also tells you a lot about our approach to people. Just because you are a godly man or woman, a respectable person, honorable in every way, doesn't mean that you just open your mouth and people respond positively to the message of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is still responsible for conversion, as this story clearly shows. But what I want you to see here is a couple things in, under this first point, and that is John's faithfulness to Herod. He confronted Herod with the truth. And some people say, well, it's not kind to point out people's failures and sin. And you know what I think John would say to us right now? It's very unkind not to. Right? You think that you're, you're winning friends by withholding the truth? John would say, think again. How many of you want your doctor, if you've been diagnosed with cancer, to say, ah, oh, you'll be all right, take an aspirin or two? None of us, right? Listen to what this says in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You know how you show yourself a true friend? Speaking the truth. That's how. You've you got you to gotta wonder uh, in this story and John's faithfulness to Herod, demonstrated by not pulling punches. What are our neighbors gonna be saying about us if they don't come to Christ? What are they gonna be saying about us a thousand years into hell? Oh, you were such a good neighbor. You know, the, your leaves never came onto my lawn. Is that what they're gonna say? Is that what you want them to say? I, I think we would hope that they would say, he tried to tell me. He told me the truth. I'm here because I rejected it. 
not, eh, they never really said anything. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And in case you're wondering, you know, how is it that John the Baptist became so popular as a truth teller and without using flattery, listen to Proverbs 28:23. Proverbs 28:23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. You want your neighbors to speak well of you? I mean, of course, maybe you're maybe not. I don't know what your objective is in life to get your neighbors to speak well of you. I don't know. But the way to not get that is by flattery. Friends, we have an obligation to speak the hard truths of the gospel. Things like this. You are a sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Those are hard things to say to people, and yet, without knowing that sin separates from God, one will never repent of it and never experience forgiveness. We have an obligation to let everyone know that they will face God's judgment one day because of their sin. The, I, I've told you this before on how I prefer funerals over weddings because at funerals people listen to the pastor speaking and at wedding no one cares what the pastor says because they're all concerned about the beauty of the bride, I guess which is appropriate. But in funerals, man, everybody's all ears for the most part. Um, and this is good. It's an opportunity to share truths. I've been in many a funeral where I know that the family, friends, and so forth and so on have zero interest in God. You can tell by everything that's happening in that funeral. And that's exactly the moment that they need to hear what's really difficult to say. The same is true in the church, friends. Uh, do you want a pastor who's going to pull punches like a doctor who's going to give you aspirin? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't. I, I think you'd rather have a John the Baptist than a, well, I won't name names. So what do we do? We, we open the book of Mark and we preach through chapter 1, then chapter 2, then chapter 3, and so forth. Open the book of Romans, preach all the way up to chapter 9, lose a third of your congregation, then go to chapter 10 from chapter 9. <laughs> yeah. But what do, what do we, what are, what's required of us as Christians? Truth is required, which is what we see in John the Baptist. He, he confronted Herod and Herodias, his wife, with the truth, and Herodias, at least, hated him for it. Her number one objective after hearing this constant barrage of condemnation from the preacher, the fiery preacher, John the Baptist, was to have him killed. And that's why it says Herod kept him safe from Herodias. Herod kept John safe from Herodias until John offended Herod. Then John went to prison. J.C. <clears throat> Ryle said this, it's better that people persecute us now for our faithfulness than curse us eternally for unfaithfulness. Again, what are your neighbors going to say about your testimony in eternity? 
John was used by God to awaken a sleeping conscience in Herod. But then we see here in the second half of this text, verses 21 and on, the killing of a weak, a weak conscience. Verses 21 to 29, the killing of a weak conscience. Jewish people never really celebrated birthdays. Um, it's not wasn't part of their culture. But male birthday parties in the Roman and non-Jewish world were well attended by men. Um, and women were allowed to come to male birthday parties if they were part of the entertainment. You understand what I'm saying? That, that's how birthdays went in the first century in Gentile communities like Herod's. Um, but the only people invited to birthday parties were men. Um, and so they could exercise, you know, their certain male fantasies without their wives present. And that was the case with this particular birthday party. It says, opportunity arose, Herod's birthday. So you know what's going to happen at that party, right? Alcohol, prostitutes, strip dancers were the norm at male birthday parties in Herod's day. The dance that Herodias' daughter danced, uh, that was not a ballet or a clog dance at all. It was a strip dance is what it was. Which is why Herod responded so positively to it. But the offer that he made to Salome, this dancer, wasn't his to make. Listen, he didn't own a kingdom. He wasn't a king. He was a governor. He was put in charge by Caesar Augustus. It wasn't his to give away. He couldn't have given it away if he tried. He was a governor. That's it. Not a king, not a president, a governor. He was a steward, really of the emperor of Rome. So what was Herod doing there? He was just blowing hot air, trying to make himself seem more important than he was to his party guests. After his braggadocious promise, what do we see Salome doing here? Pretty interesting. Look closely at what she does. She's running back to mommy, asking what she should ask for. He just promised half the kingdom, should I get a nice pearl dress from Rome? What should I get, Mom? The answer was clear. The head of John the Baptist. Look at verse 23. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Then she went out, and Mom says, verse 24, give me the head of John the Baptist. Look at 25. How interesting does this get? And she came in immediately. Remember what Mark is doing when he uses that word? He, in fact, he adds to it with haste, asking, I want you to give me at once, immediately, with haste, at once, in case you get sober in the next 10 minutes and change your mind, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a platter. Normally, these kind of things were given a week or two to dish out, not this one. I want it now. Because Herodias... Salome's mom and Salome knew Herod would probably change his mind when he got sober. So you can see how the story's unfolding here. 
She wanted the death of John the Baptist, that is, Herodias did. It's amazing to see how bitterly people hate those who call out their sin. Had John done that for Herodias? Oh yeah, <laughs> many times. She schemed and connived until the opportunity, it says in verse 20, arose and she took it to get rid of John. It's interesting, I was reading the commentary on this passage from Matthew Henry. You know what he says? He thinks that Herod was behind this conspiracy. Herod wanted a way out. He could blame it on his drunkenness, on his party guests, on whatever. That's what Matthew Henry thinks. That Herod was the one who took the opportunity, not Herodias. This might pacify a public to say, hey, I was drunk, I didn't know what I was doing, because the public thought John the Baptist was a, a prophet, right? I'm not sure if Matthew Henry got it right. I'm not convinced of it, but it's interesting nonetheless. It gives you an idea that he was complicit, at least. <laughs> but we do know that Herod's conscience was in the balance, right? Herod's conscience was being tested. His character was on trial. He put himself in a very difficult place. Listen to what John Bunyan says about this moment in the life of every human being when the conscience is being tested to the utmost. The first step to, cure, the, first step, uh, to the cure of a wounded conscience, which what Herod had, is for thee to know the grace of God. Do you have a wounded conscience this morning? It may not be as severely wounded as Herod's, but do you have a wounded conscience over something you've done or said? Let me read Bunyan's quote again. The first step to the cure of a wounded conscience is for thee to know the grace of God. Run to Jesus is the cure for a wounded conscience. Something Herod refused to do. The creator of the conscience, the master of the soul, is the one who can resolve conscience issues. Herod's conscience was directing him to God, but this pride of his, this, this commitment to sin, uh, wouldn't allow him to change direction. E even though it, it was front and center, the decision to make, either to do what would please God or, or to do what would please my guests, he couldn't get himself to do what was right. He wanted the esteem and the support of his party guests. He had enough enemies. His, his ex-father-in-law was a local king just across the river who was very upset with Herod for ditching his wife and taking Herodias. This was all fresh. So Herod's reputation and authority was teetering at this point. So he had to follow through in his oath to this dancing girl because his party guests were watching. Herod even went so far as to protect John until there was a conflict between what was right and sparing John's life and the applause of men. <laughs> John preferred darkness rather than coming to the light that John offered in Jesus Christ. So what we can see here is that Herodias set up Herod using her daughter to do so and now watching Herod twist in the wind with no choice but to kill the man he was protecting. Uh, um, 
Herod had to sear, even kill his own conscience to fulfill his basic desire, the praise of men. Many times people's consciences are awakened to God and eternal things only to see their sin unravel that. Because of a particular sin, whatever it may be. In Pilate's case, I mean Herod's case, the praise of men, the applause of man. Oh, Herod, aren't you great? Aren't you powerful? You can give away up half your kingdom. Instead of, hey, this is wrong. You know, John has done nothing. He's a godly, righteous, and just man. No. He was more concerned about these people he didn't like. <laughs> so many people base their decisions on what others will think of them if they choose to do what's right, choose to honor God. So many people walk away from God because what they think others will think of them if they follow God. Herod killed his conscience trying to appease and impress his party guests. It's amazing to see how people can get so close to, like I said, the threshold of salvation, of grace, even of eternity with Christ, and turn and walk away because they're more committed to some sin or a group of people who they don't like. Yielding to a master sin. John, John lost his life because of it. So Herod wanted his sin more than he wanted a savior. You remember what Jesus said about the praise of men? Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Applies here. Everyone, of course, has a favorite sin. Everyone has a sin that is their weakness. And when I mean favor, it's not something you favor. It's, it's, it's something that has strength against you. That kind of sin. That's what I mean by favorite sin. And this was Herod's. This was his Achilles heel. The story is a good warning, isn't it, for us? As John Owen said, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. So what's your favorite sin? What have you done to battle it? How far have you gone to shore up your conscience in your fight against this sin? Have we gone as far as Jesus recommends? He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, do what? Pluck it out. Right hand, cut it off. Let's see where this all ends for Herod. And it's a sad ending, so I'm sorry about that, but again, it is the word of God. Um, we're going to jump to the Gospel of Luke to, to get to the sad ending. Um, Mark doesn't record it because his focus was on revealing the important decisions that were being made about Jesus' character, Jesus' identity. So Mark, Mark stops his story here after the death of John the Baptist, but there's more that show us the dying and then dead conscience and its result. Um, the, the record that I'm going to read for you from Luke, you could turn there if you want, Luke 23. You might want to follow along. It's not on the overhead. I'm just going to read you four verses there. But The record that, that Luke records is the last thing that's mentioned about this Herod, Herod Antipas, this guy that we're looking at in Mark 6. 
When, when Jesus was being tried the night before his crucifixion, uh, you remember Pilate was, was quote-unquote, trying him. And Pilate hears that Herod Antipas, this guy in Mark 6, was in town for the Passover party. Remember, Herod was the governor of Galilee up north. The trial of Jesus was in Jerusalem down south. Pilate was governing down south, knowing, being acquainted with Herod up north. Pilate said, hey, Jesus is actually part of his jurisdiction. Let's get Pilate here to judge this guy. So he did. He sends Jesus over to Pilate for judgment. Um, and of course, this greatly pleased Herod because he always wanted to see Jesus perform some miracle. Look with me at Luke 23 uh, and listen to this unbelievable ending to Herod's story. When Herod saw Jesus, okay, this is, Herod shows up, I mean, Jesus shows up into Herod's court and for quote-unquote judgment or trial. And this is what we have here. Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Why was he glad? For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Maybe Jesus will turn water into wine. Isn't this awesome? Maybe this guy will levitate or something as entertaining as that. This is what it's come down to for Herod, who knew the gospel, who knew the man of the gospel, who personally was personal friends with the prophet, John the Baptist, who preached the gospel. When Herod saw Jesus, he's very glad because he might see some sign. Verse 9, so that is Herod questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers, listen, treated him, that is treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him with a splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate, made fun of Jesus. That's how far conscience can dive, how deep it can go. Hard to understand until you look in the mirror and see what a diminishing conscience has done in your own life. It seems that at this point in Herod's life, his interest in Jesus was not about repentance or spiritual matters. He wanted to be entertained. His conscience was long since dead. We can detect no spiritual heartbeat in Luke chapter 8, or 23 rather. Herod stood face to face with Jesus who was God in human flesh in absolute perfection in every way, an opportunity to speak to the King of Kings and his heart was cold as ice. No questions. Do you have any questions you want to ask Jesus when you get to see him face to face? I got a few. None from this guy. Zero. Not even a question about his past teaching, preaching, or miracle activity. No. He had no spiritual questions. 
There was no signs of life. His conscience was dead. His soul was dead. What a tragic ending. Shift back to Pilate. Evidently, his conscience was still alive. He said, I find no fault in this man. What are we doing here? At least he had a conscience, but not Herod. Herod had repeatedly and often hardened his heart. But the final nail, I think, was when he succumbed to his wife's request to kill John the Baptist. From then on, he was a walking dead man. So, let's, let's take this from Herod's problem to our problem. Has Christ been revealed to you, friend? Has Christ been revealed to you? If you've been here for this sermon series on Mark, he's been revealed to you. What's your response? Yeah, I kind of like Jesus. He's all right. I'll, you know, give a glance his way when it's convenient. That's not an option here. <laughs> if you've heard the presentation of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Mark, you know that he is the God of heaven, the master of all, the king of kings, and Lord of all. Have you felt at any point in the past sermons or praying or reading through Mark, the tugging of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is standing before you just like he was standing before Herod. What's your call? You, if you say, Jesus is okay, or eh, you're in the same shoes as Herod. It's a dangerous thing to close your heart off to the spiritual promptings of the Holy Spirit. It ends here, like in Luke 23. If you sense the activity of the Holy Spirit, the only safe response is to turn and receive what he is prompting you towards. Even if you're a believer, you can suffer through a hardening of your conscience. You can experience a desensitization to God's spirit that puts calluses on your conscience that are hard to remove. But praise God, he can remove calluses and hard hearts. He can replace hearts of stone. He does it every day. He can solve the chaos of a callous heart even. His word, of course, tells us his word, by the way, is the balm of the soul. It's that softening cream that you would wipe on your soul like you wipe on your hands when they're sore and callous. That's the word of God. It's, it softens your soul. You, you, you begin to experience once again, afresh, anew, the winsome spirit of God, love of Christ. We're going to close with a song called Jesus, I Am Resting, Resting. It says here, Jesus, I am resting, resting, first verse, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon me as thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power thou hast made me whole. 
What the author of this song is saying is Jesus is standing before you. What's your call? I'm, thou hast bid me gaze upon me. Jesus is saying, look at me. What do you say? Will you follow? Will you submit? Or will you harden your heart and turn away? How is your conscience this morning, friend? That's the point of the text. It's not to make us think less of Herod. It's to get you to look in the mirror. This is the point of all of Scripture, right? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand here in judgment, it seems. The Holy Spirit has brought Christ Jesus before our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to make a judgment here from Mark 6 concerning Christ. Are we going to feed or starve our God-given conscience when it comes to Christ? Are we going to turn to him or turn to sin? Are we going to embrace the light or run into the darkness once again? Jesus, this is what is before us, and we plead with you to have mercy on our souls. We plead that you will, in fact, uh, soften our hearts, remove the calluses from our hearts and minds, and restore them to their original condition, one that's receptive, one that embraces Jesus, our creator and savior and friend. Lord, I pray that if there be people in the room this morning that have repeatedly turned from you, even those who claim Christ, I pray that you'll have mercy. I pray that you'll restore again this, the joy of knowing you, truly embracing you, our Savior and friend. And I pray this in his name. Amen.